Good evening. My name is Noelin. I'm a member here, and I'll be reading our sermon scripture passage for tonight from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through chapter 13, verse 6. Um, if you'd like a copy of the Bible, we ha- uh, the black Bible is in the pews that you can use. Uh, we only ask that you pull those back, but if you'd like a copy to take home with you, we have blue Bibles um, at the table at the front that you can take home with you. Again, I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through chapter 13, verses 6. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels and unawares. Remember those who are in prison, although in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you, you also are in the, in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I'll not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nolan. Well, good evening, Oxology. It is uh, good to be back with you. So we are in our final three weeks of Hebrews, including today. And I really do hope it's been as invigorating for you guys as it has been for me. This is the first time I've done, uh, this is the first time I've preached through Hebrews. Um, It's been truly transformative in my own life, and I hope it will be for you for years to come. And so then we'll have our Easter service, as John mentioned, and then we'll move into the Ten Commandments after Easter. You know, looking at, I think, one, hopefully understanding it in a way that we, most of us probably don't understand. And then number two, you know, how in the world are they relevant uh, for life in 2022? So looking forward to going through that with you guys. Um, so Hebrews is about persevere, draw near, do it together. That's the theme. And it's wrapping up everything in chapter 13. And chapter 13 is heavy on application And because it's heavy on application, let's look at how the scriptures itself frames it. So look at verse 28 in chapter 12. This is really the start of chapter 13. So it says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, dot, 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 dot. In other words, Hebrews 1 through 12 has been describing the supreme beauty of Jesus, and in spite of ourselves, drawing us into his family. And in light of Jesus doing this for us and his superlative beauty, now we live a new kind of life. And this is vital because something you hear with regular enough frequency is something to the effect of, you know, all religions are basically the same. And while it's true that every other major world religion, and including the religion of our modern secular culture, they operate on the principle of, if I live this way, then I know I'm somebody. Uh, The gospel is the exact opposite. It's in Jesus you are supremely adored. In Christ you are brought in fully into God's family. And now in light of that, you live a new life. So new life must come second. You flip that order and you distort the gospel. And yet, while new life must come second after knowing that you're loved, it must come second. (laughs) Okay, so we don't want to be a kind of people who are puffed up with head knowledge about God's grace to us, but then don't live lives that actually look different. We don't want to be like the religious hypocrites that Jesus rebuked in his own day. And so this is what Hebrews 13 is going to help us do because it invites us into something better 
than religious hypocrisy, where we know a lot about God's grace, but we don't actually live lives that are new and look different. And so you see it says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken through Jesus, and then let us offer to God, we're still in verse 28 of chapter 12, let us offer to God acceptable worship. So everything here in chapter 13 is going to be how we offer to God acceptable or fitting is perhaps a better translation for that word, how we offer God fitting worship in response to what he's done for us and continues to do for us through Jesus. And what we're going to see here in the first six verses of chapter 13 will probably surprise you uh, because I think for most of us when we think of worshiping God, we think of singing. And that's absolutely true. Uh, But what we're going to see here is we're going to be challenged to expand our understanding of what it means to worship God. And what it's saying here is a way you offer God fitting worship for bringing you into his family is you practice Philadelphia. That's all we need to remember for today. Philadelphia, it's a Greek compound word. Phileo, it means love. And then Adelphos, which is brother or family. Familial love is what we're looking at in these first six verses of chapter 16. So uh, let's go ahead and we'll break down this passage into these two headings. First, we'll see the attitude of Philadelphia. And then number two, the practices of Philadelphia. So first, number one, the attitude of Philadelphia. And then number two, the practices. Okay, so first... Number one, the attitude of Philadelphia. So chapter 13, verse 1, let brotherly love, or Philadelphia, familial love, continue. So think about how you love your family. You may not like all of your family members. You may have people in your family who are like what Zazu, the bird, you know, described to Mufasa when speaking about Scar and the Lion King. You know, he says, ah, there's one in every family, sire, two in mine, actually, and they always manage to ruin special occasions, right? So you may have people in your family who aren't thrilling to be around, but you love your family, you're committed to your family because they're family. And so what we're being called to here is likewise in the church, and this is written not to just the church at large, although that's certainly true, but specifically to the local church you're in, You may not click with everybody in your local church, but you're called to invest in each person and stay committed to your church because they're family. And when we see this, we realize that apart from Jesus changing our hearts, by default we have a distorted spirituality because we we all want the vertical love of God. Right? But when it comes to the brass tacks of actually loving every person in our church in this familial kind of way, it's really difficult. And there's this place in Mark 3 where Jesus is teaching in his home, and it's crowded. And his mother and brothers come to try to find him, but they can't get in because there's all the crowds around. And so they say, hey, Jesus, tell, tell him your mother and your brother's outside. So they tell Jesus, and you know what his response is? He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And he points at the people around me goes these are my mother and brothers those who do the will of God and if my mom heard me say that she'd be like son who who sacrificed years of sleep to keep you alive you know so this would be an absurd statement by Jesus except it's true what Jesus is doing here is he's not dissolving the nuclear family the nuclear family really matters but he's expanding our reality to see that now our family is no longer circumscribed within the blood of just our immediate nuclear family, 
but it, now it's based on the blood of Jesus' person and work. And so what we're called to do is really, and this challenges both those who tend to, you know, over-prioritize the nuclear family, and this happens, you know, a lot, it can happen a lot in the church, and those who adopt a, you know, a hyper-individualistic approach to where we're really supposed to view those in our local church, you know, with more or less the same weight, you know, that we do even our nuclear family. And so as we look at this and hopefully are, are challenged by this in a way, um, something that, that may, ho- may hopefully help us here is uh, in our current cultural climate, there's a term that I think has surfaced more recently, and it's the phrase, my chosen family. You know, in other words, people outside of my blood family who are my people, you know, the people who I feel safe with, the people who support me. And this phrase of my chosen family, it, it's a cue into the fact that our modern climate is really difficult on the traditional family, you know, with parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, and so forth. Um, maybe in a way that prior cultures weren't. And for a lot of people, I know for many of you, you know, I have a broad range of, of histories in here. Um, it's just very clear in our modern climate that the nuclear family isn't a powerful or good or present reality uh, in the lives of a lot of people. And, and yet, regardless of your experience with family, what you can see by this phrase, you know, oh, this is my chosen family, we all intuit that family, whatever that is, is significant and a fundamental need. Like we all know there needs to be a body of people where we're seen and supported and challenged in the right kind of ways and where we get the kind of experience that we know we're supposed to get when it comes to family. And so as we move into the practices of Philadelphia, what does it actually look like to practice familial love Some of these are going to be really challenging. And so as we go through these challenging applications, first remember what we looked at in the beginning, which is it's not to earn God's love, it's because it's already been extended to us. But number two, Jesus is offering us an opportunity here to actually create the kind of family that everybody longs for. And it it won't happen perfectly. Of course, church is messy. It's not going to happen perfectly until Jesus renews the world. But it can happen really with the presence of God through his Holy Spirit in our midst. And so as we look, as we look at these, we're going, oh my gosh, this is hard. But that's why good families are hard. Because it's hard, because to create a beautiful family, it requires a high degree of unselfishness. And that's tough. And so as we look at these applications, just think about as we do this, and as you do this, you can actually help create the kind of family that Christians and people who don't know Jesus are looking for. Okay, so this is the attitude of Philadelphia, that we're actually supposed to view those in our local church as family and commit to them as such. So number two, what are the practices? Uh, Because the author, he is a good counselor, he knows that we often like to reduce love to sentiment and just say, oh yeah, yeah, I love people in the abstract. So he's going to get very concrete and show us what this looks like. So first number one, verse two, and I'm just going to show you very clearly walking down the text how we see these. You're not going to think, oh, these are just... Steve's ideas of what we need to do, okay? So first, number, number uh, verse two, the practice of Philadelphia. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Uh, this literally translate to, it translates to invite into your home those who are strange to you. 
So, you know, a lot of people have those friends. You know, you have your people where it doesn't matter what you're doing. You could be taking an hour-long walk in silence, and you love it. It doesn't matter what you're, you just love because they're your people, right? You feel very comfortable with them. But what biblical hospitality is, it's looking at the people who are strange to you, you know, for any way, shape, and form, and inviting them into your home and into your life. So it's the kind of people where, you know, if you've ever gotten together with someone or a couple people, and it's about two hours of trying really hard to find common ground or some kind of fluid conversation, and you leave, maybe this is just me, I don't know, but you leave the conversation, you're thinking, well, that was, that was hard work. <laughs> like, I kind of don't want to do that again, just because that whole thing felt like I was, you know, slogging through the final mile of a marathon. But what the author is showing us here is you want to practice Philadelphia. You invest in those who are strange to you. And this is fitting worship to the Lord. And why do we do it? Because thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And this is a reference to Genesis 18 when Abraham and his wife Sarah, they invited three strangers into their home and fed them and then later realized they were angels. And the point here is when you invite those who are strange to you into your home, extraordinary things will happen, even though it feels ordinary in the moment. And just as a a brief example from my own life, so when I was in college, I went through a season of a pretty intense depression. And uh, one of the years that I was in college, one of the pastors of the church that I went to, he invited me with a small group of guys to go to his house on Thursday evenings for a Bible study. He would cook dinner for us and do a Bible study with us. And his name was Chris Faith. And I, I know for this man, it was, it was hard for a few reasons. One, because he didn't know us that well, and we were kind of an awkward group. And so, and he's having to invest in us, knowing that we're probably not going to be in his church in two years, because once we graduate, you know, we're off to the next town. And I'm sure there were many Thursday evenings where he had a grueling day of pastoral ministry, and he probably would have wanted nothing more than to just sit by his fireplace and smoke his pipe and read a book. But he had us into his and cooked us a meal and led us through this Bible study. And without exaggeration, I can tell you that because of Chris' faith, I got through, he helped me through some pretty dark thoughts. And in many ways, I'm still a Christian because of Chris' faith. Uh, the Bible study we went through was the book of Hebrews. <laughs> And I'm sure for him, there were many, now that I'm on the other side of it, there were many Thursday evenings where he thought to himself, is this even doing anything? But yet, here I am, and here you are. And so you never know how when you practice hospitality, God will use it to change you and other people, because when you obey God's word, this will always happen. And so just as a, as a challenge to you, you know, Hebrews isn't giving us a number, but it's giving us a principle. And so just think about, you know, every one or two months or so, are you making a point to get together with those who are more strange to you? And later you just may find that you've been entertaining angels unawares. Okay, so that, that's the first thing of bring in those who are strange to you. Number two, we see in verse three, love the hurting. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. So in the context of Hebrews, many Christians were in prison for their faith and 
prisons then weren't like they are now. Uh, you weren't cared for in a lot of ways that current inmates are cared for. And so they re- had to rely on outside help to get something as basic as food. And so for Christians going to deliver food to other believers in, Christ- in, in prison, this wouldn't just be inconvenient, but by doing so, they would identify themselves, right, as associating with believers. And then if they wouldn't get imprisoned, they may get cut off from their families or lose job opportunities. And so while in America, at least not yet, we're not being put in prison for following Jesus, as one of my teachers pointed out to me, how many people do you know who are in the prison of their own minds? So it may be a destructive pattern they're in. It could be prolonged depression or anxiety. And what this passage is calling us to is to enter into those who are hurting and to love them. And one reason this is so hard is because hurt people hurt people. Right? Often when you look to help someone who's wounded, they wound you in return. And I can look back on even areas of my own life where I was walking through a season of deep hurt and people tried to help me, and I hurt them in return, you know, be it through a callous comment or just not even giving them gratitude. It's, it's, it's what happens when we suffer. And a story where we see this in, in the scriptures is the book of Ruth, where it tells this story, uh, it's a beautiful story about this woman named Naomi, who she loses her husband and her two sons. That's rough. And she becomes a jaded person. And this young woman, her daughter-in-law named Ruth, decides to stick with her, to relocate to Naomi's hometown with her, and to stay by her side. You know, wherever you go, I I will go, she says to her. And there's this one day where Ruth wants to go into the fields to get some food, and in this time and place, to just walk into the fields in the evening, uh, there was a bunch of men in the fields, and to do that as a woman on your own, where there isn't a system to protect you, would be really dangerous. So she tells Naomi, I'm just going to go to the fields, find some food, and Naomi goes, oh, okay. And Naomi knew the risk. It's like, oh, that's, that's cold. But hurt people often hurt people. And so as we think about practicing Philadelphia, we're called to, to stick by those who are hurting, even if they don't show us gratitude, even if they may say something, you know, later they'll realize they didn't really mean because it's what Jesus first did for us. And so one way you know is you can just think about your life is, you know, do you have any kind of battle scars from walking with people? This isn't saying let people abuse you and walk over you. Absolutely not. But it, particularly in a cultural moment where people are very quick to say just, you know, get rid of those who are difficult, uh, we are called to a higher standard in terms of loving those uh, who are hurting. So that's number two, is to actually enter into the lives of people who are hurting and to walk with them. It's hard. Okay, this isn't just sentiment. And so, number, but it's going to get harder, <laughs> okay? <laughs> All right, so number three, uh, so we bring in those who are strange. We love those who are hurting. Uh, number three, how do we practice Philadelphia, which is fitting worship to God? The author makes this seemingly out of the blue and uncomfortable comment in verse four about the marriage bed. It says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So what in the world does this have to do with Philadelphia? And it's because 
to be a family means you don't settle for a superficial kind of relationship where you say, I'm not going to bother you. You're not going to bother me. We're just going to coast and not really talk about anything deep or difficult. And so, and when you read this through an individualistic lens, you think, oh, okay, yeah, I need to practice, you know, sexual purity. Uh, But that's not exactly what it's saying. Um, It's saying in a community, we actually need to have the difficult, often awkward conversations, whether we're married or not, to help one another practice sexual wholeness. And here's why this is so vital. I mean, for many reasons, but it goes without saying, you know, the church especially hyper-conservative church, uh, hasn't done a great job in this area, right? And so Jesus, when he teaches on sexual wholeness, unlike the hyper-conservative church, which essentially will often say, you know, this isn't a place where you can process your longings and don't show your shoulder, that's scandalous. You know, all the while, you know, we're not going to talk about it until all of a sudden we have to talk about it because pathology has been swirling under the surface, What Christ teaches is that our sexuality, while it's not our identity, and that's one of the tragedies of our modern climate, making an identity, it's not our identity, but it is a large part of how God made us. And our our sexual longings, when properly ordered, are a beautiful way to experience union with God and communion with other people. And so we need to talk about it. One of the reasons why there's all these pathologies in, in the churches because it's not talked about. But on the other hand, unlike the broader culture, which the main ethic in broader culture is as long as there's consent, you know, then any two willing parties can, can have sex with one another. And yes, amen to consent. But when that's the main or sometimes often the sole ethic, what this does is it reduces sex to a mere transaction And contra our culture, what Jesus says is sex is, it's far deeper, more sacred, more cosmic than an act between two willing parties. Because what it's meant to do is to serve as a window to point beyond itself to the love that Christ has for us as people. And when Christ loves us, he loves us vulnerably, generously, faithfully, in the context of a covenant. And so that's, and I realize this is very prudish to, it sounds very prudish to people in the church and outside the church, but the reason why Christ gives us this, ex, this ethic is because it's meant to point to Christ's covenant love for his people, and so that's why it's supposed to be in the context of a marriage where you've already made a lifelong promise to someone, where now you're saying, I'm doing with my body what I've promised to do with my life, because that's what Jesus has first done for me, is he's given himself to me wholly. And so here's the thing. When it comes to talking about this in the church, because it's hard, it's actually only a community that's based on the gospel where these kinds of conversations can happen. Why? Because the gospel is not a prize for sexually perfect people. All of us are sexually not as we should be. All of us, married, unmarried, will want to use sex for self-interest rather than the good of the other. And this is one of the reasons why I love the Bible, because when I read the Bible, it's an ongoing story of God meeting people who aren't sexually whole, and then meeting them 
and bringing them in and giving them a righteousness outside of themselves and introducing to them a new and better way to live. And so as I read the Bible, I think, oh, that's someone like me. Okay, the gospel is for me. And so in the church, what we need to do is to encourage one another to practice this because it is such a direct reflection of our Savior. And so as an example of how this played out in in my life one time, uh, when Kelsey and I were dating, she was living in California, and I was on the East Coast, and I went to go visit her. And a friend of mine, shortly before my flight, he goes, oh, so you're going to visit Kelsey, huh? I was like, yeah. And he goes, where are you sleeping? I was like, what do you mean? He goes, you know what I mean. And I go, "Uh, dude, it's going to be fine. And he goes, okay. When you get back, I'm going to ask you a question. And I go, how about when I get back, I'll ask you a question. No, Um, but by him caring enough to have that awkward conversation, it, it helped me practice sexual wholeness in that moment. And so the, you know, the sermon's not about this, but, but the principle here is as a community, we're invited to something really beautiful to help one another as a community practice sexual wholeness, right? Not just, not something dirty, not just a mere transaction, but something that's, that points to Christ's love for his people. Yeah, this is, right? It's like, I thought the first two were difficult. All right, so ne- next one, number four, Philadelphia, how do we practice it? Verse five, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Okay, so again, the question, how is this relevant to Philadelphia? All the relevance in the world. So first, when we keep our money to ourselves, it's never just a private thing, but it does shape our heart in such a way that it is going to impact how we treat other people, even in context that doesn't directly relate to money. Okay, when we're generous with our money, we're going to end up being generous in other areas of our life to our covenant family in the church. But not only that, in order to be able to practice, the, like the, th- the practices we've been talking about are difficult. And in order to have these kinds of conversations, right, about sexuality, actually walking with those who are hurting, bringing in people who are strange to us, that requires a level of trust and safety that requires decades, decades to cultivate. And so in order to have this kind of family You need longevity, and you can't have longevity when there's rapid turnover in a family. And so, you know, just uh, not too long ago, a a pastor asked me, he said, hey, would you come and work for our church if you got double the salary you're making now? And I said, no, I wouldn't. Now, if you pay me triple the salary, you know, kids got to get through college somehow. No, just kidding. No, I said, no, I wouldn't. And the reason is because, I mean, at least what Kelsey and I's intention is to invest in this church family and in this city for as long as we can. And by God's grace, see a Jesus-centered culture grow. And so as we live in a culture where convenience is often the bottom line when it comes to sticking with the church, and money is a bottom line, and here's how this can look, right? Because we're, we're in a climate now, where especially with virtual work, it's easy to, you know, you can keep your city salary and live somewhere with, you know, half the cost of living. But when money is your bottom line rather than Jesus is making a family, 
it changes how you think about things. And so as an example, a, a pastor friend recently shared how there's a member in his church who approached him and said, hey, I got this job offer, new job, I would make double my current salary. And I can go live somewhere half the cost of living. And so immediately my friend's thinking, well, I'll see you later. <laughs> and he said, okay, you said you accept the job. And the member said, no, I didn't. Because I really care about this family. And I want to stay. And I, just, I hope that challenges you. You know, for some of you, you're going to move, and that's okay. And I love how, you know, each and every person I've looked at, I'm, I'm looking at right now, you guys have invested in this family remark. Some of you are going to move, and that's okay. But we always have to check our intuitions where if fi financial comfort is the bottom line, right, for what we choose to do, just ask yourself, you know, does that line up with the Philadelphia that we're being invited into uh, in the scriptures. Okay, and so number five, how in the world do we practice this? Because who in their right mind would regularly invite into their home someone who is strange to them? Who in their right mind will regularly stick with people who are hurt, even when they're hurt in return? Who in their right mind will have awkward, difficult conversations about sexuality? Who in their right mind would stay at a higher cost of living or give up convenience to form a family? Who indeed? And that's why this passage ultimately isn't about the practices we need to do but it's about a person. And you see here in Philadelphia, verse one, let brotherly love continue. The other place in Hebrews this word continues used is in chapter seven. And this would have served as a cue for the readers or for the listeners because this was a sermon. You know, when did they last hear this word continue? And it's the exact same Greek word used to describe Jesus when he's described as our sympathetic brother who entered into your hurt and then continues with you so that your wounds do not have the final say in your life. But he's going to stay with you until he makes you whole. And so let's go back to that saintly church member we talked about a couple minutes ago who gave up the giant increase in financial comfort to stick with his family. That sounds extreme, but it's not that extreme when you see the simple logic of it. Because what he realized is that what we're being called to here in, verse, in chapter 13, it's not about our willpower or doing something really hard so that God loves us. It's just the natural response when we see Jesus and look at Jesus. Because Jesus is preparing a home for you. Even though you're not only a stranger, but you used to be an enemy of his. Jesus sees your hurt. And then he enters into it so those wounds do not define you. And then he is left with scars on the cross so that he can make you whole. Jesus lived a sexually whole life so that you can be made pure and you are brought into his family regardless 
of your sexual history. And Jesus gave up convenience and a much better cost of living to form a family. And when you look at Jesus, it's not just that you'll be able to do these things. You'll want to. And so let's form this family, okay, as we practice Philadelphia in these ways that resembles the welcome and beauty of our Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I do thank you for first making us a family. And in an era where a family is so hard, uh, Lord, we're not going to get this right all the time, but I pray through your presence and unending grace and power uh, that you'll help us to continue forming a family uh, that really does resemble the welcome and beauty of our Savior. And so will you do this in us by the power of your Holy Spirit, and throughout all this, help us to keep looking at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen.